Let's uh, begin with the the scripture that I'm going to preach from, which is from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, which you can find in the uh, the church uh, Bibles on page 978. Page 978, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Make sure the picture's as large as it'll go for you. Richard Dawkins, a notorious British atheist, notes that it's often been said that there's a God-shaped gap in the brain which needs to be filled. Well, it was in fact the French Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal who famously said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and only God can fill it. As a rejoinder to this line of thought, Dawkins poses a rhetorical question. He asks, could it be that God actually clutters up a gap that we'd be better off filling with something else. Uh, Science, perhaps. Art. Human friendship. Humanism. Love of this life in the real world, giving no credence to other lives beyond the grave. Um, No. (laughs) Dawkins' response is shallow because it's in the very appreciation of science and art and human friendship and so on that we nonetheless discover an unsatisfied desire for something deeper, something more. C.S. Lewis famously argued that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the, the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it. And if that's so, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. The Lord's Prayer is really about keeping alive that desire for our true country whilst bringing its influence into our lives here and now. Here's how Matthew records the Lord's Prayer according to a pretty literal translation of the earliest manuscripts. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done upon earth as in heaven. Give us today the bread of us for the coming day. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into testing, but deliver us from evil. To understand this prayer, we need to understand a little bit about Jewish poetry. The, distinguish the distinguishing feature of which is the rhythmical balancing of parts, or a parallelism of thought. While English poets want their, their sounds to rhyme, Hebrew poets wanted their ideas to rhyme, as it were. In so-called synonymous parallelism, an opening statement is explained by an associated line or lines that express the same thought with variation. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah writes, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The same thought expressed with variation. Psalm 24, verse 4, has a, a three-line parallelism. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. It's the same thought expressed in different ways to really drive the point home. Likewise, the Lord's Prayer has a three-line parallelism here. Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What it means for God's name or his character to be hallowed or, or honoured is unpacked by the following two lines. And Jesus' prayer ends with the synonymous parallelism of and lead us not into testing but deliver us 
from evil. And in between these two units, we have a third unit of parallel. Give us today the bread of us for the coming day, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, if, as some assume, Jesus is talking here about physical bread, then he's using it as a symbol to talk about food in general. However, I think that Jesus has in mind here the messianic feast mentioned, for example, in Matthew 8.11, the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Recall Jesus' conversation after the feeding of the 5,000, as recorded by John in his gospel in chapter 6. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. So they asked him, What sign will you then do to give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, it's worth noting that scholars, at least since the time of St. Jerome here, have worried over a rather odd Greek word that's used in the Gospels where we translate uh, daily bread. Apousios. The exact meaning of which is elusive. Many of the early church fathers interpret this famous word in such a way that the petition prays not for the common bread of everyday life, but for a spiritual food, even the bread from heaven. So, Jerome refers to an ancient Aramaic version of the Lord's Prayer, which petitions, give us today the bread of tomorrow. If this represents Jesus' meaning, then as Rowan Williams says, Jesus was telling us to pray for the gifts of the coming kingdom to be received in the present. The need that we must learn to express is a need for God's future. What we need is the new creation, the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The prayer for bread is a prayer for our most fundamental need and desire to be met. 
And that need, that desire, it's met in relationship with God, founded on the forgiveness that's found in Christ. Appealing to the findings of empirical psychology, the Christian philosopher J.P. Morland observes that contrary to what you might think and what our culture repeatedly tells us, power, for example, money or education or success, health, sexual attractiveness and being youthful are not all that important as factors conducive to happiness and human flourishing. Here are the factors that are important for happiness and flourishing. At the top of the list is living in a constant spirit of gratitude, a sense of thankfulness for life. Next were unselfishly caring for and helping others, learning to give and receive forgiveness, and finding a deep and real sense of meaning and purpose in life by giving oneself to a larger framework than the individual's own life. So we see that the Lord's Prayer puts us into the frame of mind which the Apostle Paul called the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, Philippians 4.12. Such contentment comes from the security of knowing that our fundamental needs are met by Jesus. And so we can join with the author of Hebrews saying, being content because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Notice the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry there again. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now this understanding of the petition for bread explains its poetic connection with the prayer for forgiveness. First, reconciliation with God is a possibility advertised and enacted through Jesus' death on the cross. Recall how Jesus turned the bread of the Last Supper into a symbol of his impending sacrifice. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Forgiveness is itself a sign, a foretaste of that heavenly future in which God's will is done on earth as in heaven. And so it's an instance of tomorrow's bread. Moreover, as Rowan Williams again says, if forgiveness is the most demanding instance of learning to offer one's own resources 
for the sake of the dignity of another. If it is, in so many ways, the least natural or most countercultural form of service to each other, it is surely right to see it as a gift from the future, as God's undefeated purpose for us draws us forwards. Having asked for God's kingdom to come, we pray for a daily foretaste of that coming day, above all as demonstrated in a God-empowered, Christ-like forgiveness of those who sin against us. Give us this day our daily bread is thus a prayer for Christ to be our food and sustenance, so that in all uh, self-sufficient pride, all individual anxiety and defensiveness, all greedy effort to live at the expense of neighbour can be overcome. And the church can declare with clarity and conviction that there is indeed bread for the world's hunger, for its spiritual hunger to be found in the body of the Lord. Hence to pray for our daily bread is to focus our attention not only on how Jesus meets our most fundamental of needs, our most fundamental of desires for a forgiven relationship with God. It's also to pray that we will play our part in showing our neighbours that they have the same need, a need that does find its answer in the coming of God's kingdom through Christ to forgive us our debts and to deliver us from evil. Amen.